Hello, and thank you for listening to this 2022 PUSH Festival Industry Series panel discussion. We acknowledge that PUSH unfolds each year on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. We recognize their sovereignty as well as the privilege we have of holding our festival on these lands. We hope this conversation brings you refreshing perspectives and inspiring ideas. Hi, Beck. <laughs> Hi, Rob. Ciao. Hi, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'm just going to share a definite one of many definitions of what a creative producer is. So um, a creative producer uh, makes things happen. They sit between the creative process and the operational process in a project, uh, orchestrating ideas, resources, and people to turn the seed of an idea into reality. Creative producers shape how a work is realized, which often impacts how the work is experienced. And more than project managers, they realize the vision of a project and make it possible for a creative team to achieve their best. So I'm going to pass it over to whoever wants to jump in first. My questions are, what do you do? (laughs) Just introducing a bit about yourself, um, your practice. Feel free, if you have a different definition of a producer or a creative producer, feel free to to throw that into the mix. And I'd also be curious how you got into it. So it might be a few minutes. You know, I know that's a lot to kind of condense, but it would just be nice to get a little bit of a better idea of each of you. I'm happy to start. Um, so my name is Beck Berger. So I'm Beck uh, in that's in Osland uh, for those uh, who are watching in this um, session. Um, my accent comes from the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bonorong people of the Kulin Nations in a place called Nam. Um, most other people know it as Melbourne, Australia. Um, but I live and work now in Riga in Latvia. So I'm the artistic director of the New Theatre Institute of Latvia and the curator of the International Festival of Contemporary Theatre Homo Novus. Um, but my body's actually in France right now. So it just is very complicated um, <laughs> identity wise. Um, Gabriel, I think this is a great definition for a creative producer, but I do have another offer. <laughs> which is one of a context maker. So I, I feel like as a creative producer, it's about it's a really responsibility to create the right context for an artwork to exist. So not an artist, not an audience, not um, a place, but uh, the live moments. So how do you make that live moment happen? And that context can also be fundraising. Um, it can be um, politically lobbying. <laughs> it can be changing a whole system of... Um, access or, you know, like uh, just thinking uh, in terms of this year, you know, we, our access in Latvia is um, very at its infancy stage and that has a lot to do with political, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but um, uh, arts access is particularly important to me and um, through many years of learning Ausland in Australia and, and audio description as well. Um, but it's like we have Chiara Bassani, who is one of the best choreographers uh, in Europe right now, coming to perform in the festival. She uses a wheelchair. So I'm just going to have to bulldoze, you know, the whole system and make sure the whole festival is accessible. So this is where I think uh, creative producing can also be about systems changing, context making, making the right context for works, for works to exist, for moments to exist and to ignite. Um, so, yeah, this is my kind of definition. Um, and the other question was, how do we get into it? Um, accident? <laughs> um, I didn't study this. Um, 
I was hoping to be a doctor and was doing a double degree in like arts and science and was doing physiology and pharmacology and bioethics and all the things that wasn't producing. Um, but like many people, I got into student theatre at my university and started making shows and started making friends and started realising that this is actually something exciting. And I wasn't, uh, I called myself a producer really early on because I wasn't just the production manager. <laughs> I also was a dramaturg. This is a term I now know. <laughs> I was somewhere between a dramaturg and, and a, pro a production manager. Um, and that's really how I got into it was just simply university and the community of student theatre. Some of those people are still some of my dearest friends and uh, we are still making work together like 10, 15 years on. So uh, this, this is uh, very um, wonderful. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in next. Um, so my name's Anthony. I'm, I'm the head of program at a, an organisation called Fuel um, and we're based in London in, in England. Um, and uh, just a quick one about Fuel. It's, a, it's an independent producing company. Um, we essentially um, work with a whole range of different artists across a, a, a multitude of different art forms. And um, we we kind of take we take an artist from the very genesis, the very beginning of an idea, and we we bring that all the way through to putting it on on the platform that we feel that it it, it fully deserves. So it really is about that relationship with the artist rather than just um, having the project at, at, at the, the forefront of that relationship. So um, how did I get into it? Gosh. Um, I, 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 I've always been in the arts. I, I, I went to school. I was in a very kind of musical school and um, I studied and read music at, at a music college. Um, I did classical singing. Um, I started getting into opera and performing in kind of different cathedral choirs. Um, and I thought that was going to be me for the rest of my life. Um, and then uh, and then I was probably about 21, 22, and I just got really bored of doing the same thing day in, day out and meeting the same people. And none of those people looked like me at all. Um, and so I, I just thought, hmm, I, I'm either going to leave this industry that I love because I don't feel comfortable in it um, or, or I'm going to have to make a slight change. Um, so I went into... Um, engagement work, um, education work, outreach, it's got so many different titles, but essentially engagement work. And I, I worked in some brilliant um, buildings. I worked at um, the Royal Opera House, which is in Covent Garden. Um, I worked at a brilliant place called the Barbican. Um, and then I, I moved my life up to Manchester, which is in, in the north of England. Um, and I worked at a place called the Lowry and I that's kind of where really I, I found my my feet in producing was in those three big institutions and um, now I'm now I'm here back in London in Fuel um, working with some brilliant producers who, who are part of the team um, to, to help make sure that we are looking after our artists and their work in the, in the best way possible so yeah um, oh and your your description of producing, Gabrielle, I already said I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it. I I think it's perfect. There's always this um, 
whenever we do whenever I do a talk about producing in in England there's always you know there's always this funny question where we're all kind of um we're supposed to laugh and say oh yes and it's what is producing and everyone says oh I I don't know and isn't that funny that no one knows what producing is and now I'm just gonna throw this on the table like a like an ace in 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 my pack of cards so uh, thank you for that one Thank you for uh, having me here today. My name is Robert Thompson. I'm from the Haida Nation. Um, those roots are uh, along my dad's side. I'm also Ukrainian and a little Scottish and a little English. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm based today on uh, Hunkaminam and Squamish-speaking territory, which is Burnaby, just outside of Vancouver. Uh, the company I work for is Full Circle First Nations Performance and the Talking Stick Festival. And most of the work we do is is centered around Vancouver, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil Tooth territory. And um, I'm an artistic producer. Um, yeah, that that uh, the I'm so appreciative of the definition and Beck's offering there because I don't I just feel like we do a lot of everything and then sometimes nothing. And you just sit there and you watch a show. Um, my focus is maybe a little different than the others, but uh, I'm making a real broad assumption, but uh, I program uh, music uh, within the Talking Stick Festival and then Full Circle uh, throughout the year. And that kind of falls in, in a bunch of different streams. So it could be, you know, a monthly concert. Um, we, we program a lot of workshops. And uh, we also have a, uh, this is sort of the first time we've done this. And it's a, a consistent cohort that meets once a month and does uh, industry development. So it's an invited group of artists who um, are, who are, you know, holding their chops to learn a lot, bunch of stuff in the music industry. And then throughout the year, they'll get performance opportunities through uh, our company and some other, some more of our partners. So um, I, yeah, I think the only thing I could add to maybe the the definition and the outline of the producing job description is, for me at least, is um, uh, it's about community, and that was my introduction to producing. Is like I'm I'm a musician. I went to audio school. I played in a family band, and like all our initial opportunities as a teenager, young adult, uh, playing in this family band with my best friend, my sister, my dad, was community. Uh, events and and community events, indigenous community events, but also just like city municipality events, you know, concerts in the park, um, playing before can can dancers or you know a seniors theater performance group. So um, I had a very um, just a really interesting upbringing performing on stages and, and just seeing how those events came together. Whether it was sometimes a potlatch or a naming ceremony, or, you know, 45 minutes on, um, you know, like the city's celebration fireworks day or whatever. So, um, and from that, I, 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 we just, I just started throwing concerts and shows and that sort of turned into production work and that turned into like curatorial offers. And um, eventually uh, my job title just kept changing and I just, I'm not sure um, if I ever accepted a job as a producer as much as it was just sort of like, oh, you're called that now. So, um, yeah, so my 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 understanding of, of being a producer is just connecting to your event and sort of thinking beyond, like Beck sort of said, you know, thinking beyond just the show itself and the experience. And then also, I think, delving a little deeper for me, at least, is like thinking about well, what does the community want? Like, I could have all these great ideas and we could, you know... Uh, get money to put on a show but um, if if that 
is it addressing at least a seed of a community need, or at least we're not thinking about it, then I think that is, um, I think I'm not doing my job. And there's definitely been times I'm not doing my job. We just put on a show and uh, we haven't done the proper steps. So uh, I'm hoping that we're, we're going back and we're talking to people, the artists, the audience members, and um, uh, from a whole wide spectrum, not just my friends and the people I'm used to working with. So um, I think that's, I think that's where, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> as I thanks. trail off. <laughs> no, no, no. Great. Yeah. And I think, um, there's producing works, individual works, and then there's producing a program or a festival or a season. And some of the questions might be the same, uh, or some of the, um, responsibilities. And then, and then there's some differences probably as well. And that's interesting that, um, a couple of you wear both hats, um, at least currently. For those people who just joined us, um, thank you for joining us. And you are also welcome to put questions that you have for Beck, Anthony, or Rob into the chat. Um, but to, to move us forward, I'm going to ask um, of an example of an experience you had producing that changed your thinking on what a good producer is or changed your approach. Um, maybe this is a moment of failure that you learned from or, or just um, a project that you, you know, you went into it with one approach and you came out of it with a kind of new perspective on, on how, how you work or, um, yeah, yeah. Is anybody willing to jump I'll, in there? Jump yeah. In okay. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, first off, if you're not, if you're not failing, you're not doing your job. Um, it's, it's the first thing that we say, well, I say to, to all of our artists, um, my my job really as a as a producer um, and a dramaturg is to to push them right up until that point of failure because they've not tested their idea until it's until it's fractured or until it's broken and then then you can pull it back and really and that's that that kind of gray area that's where the magic happens I would say from a creative point of view um, so in the same kind of way of thinking if i if i don't make a mistake every day then then i'm i'm not doing my job properly um i feel and um essentially the way i work is that i just make sure that i learn from those mistakes um so one i'll tell you about a failure that i did this week um which was very embarrassing for me um and then um i wanted to jump in because it comes right off the back of um one of Rob's, Rob's points, which is uh, about those proper steps that you need to take. Um, so the failure this this week was um, uh, one of my one of my guys came came to me and was talking about a contract that I had pulled together, um, and I'd sent out to a few few artists already and their agents, um, and hopefully this doesn't come back to the agents. But there are two opposing clauses in the contract one that gives us all of the rights to their digital work and one that means that we have to pay if we try and do um anything with those with those digital um kind of assets that we have so that's a mistake that's something that um that i'll have to to change and talk to agents but really the learning from that it's it, it's always in the detail um that's that's something that I've always tried to kind of put across to my team and do with my work. It's it's making sure that as a producer, you have to see where you almost have to be a fortune teller. You have to see into the future and 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 um, come up with 
five different ways that this might go wrong so that you can prepare for that. Um, and so that's a way that I didn't do that. I, you know, I wrote that contract. It went through probably two other people to read it, but maybe I should have given it to a third person who had more time to read it, or I should have read it again. So there's one. Um, but really the one that I wanted to talk about was um, this brilliant project I did at Barbican. Still to the, this day, even though it was a bit of a failure, I still it was amazing. It was with these two guys um, called Tim and Barry. And they um they're they're a brilliant musical duo who have um uh, I guess char charted the the history of uh, a music genre called called grime, um uh, which I don't I don't know in North America if that's different from grime in the UK, but it's it's um yeah it's brilliant and they essentially um looked at the whole history of how grime and garage has evolved um throughout the years um no one else did it un until it was very popular in the uk um and i somehow got these guys to do a gig for me um in barking and barking is um is a uh quite um it's a poverty hit part of London in East London it used to be a factory kind of um uh, part of the city um and so there's there's a lot of poverty there and I wanted to to do a, a gig which I thought would really speak to 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 the people there and so Tim and Barry curated this amazing program of artists with artists who literally I would I would kind of I was just like they're my idols um and we put it out there. We put the show on, and in in a in a theatre that had about five hundred capacity, and I'd I'd be lucky if I was saying that um a uh, hundred people came um, and uh and I was re I was really taken aback. I was just like I have put on one of the best gigs I've ever been to in my life. Um uh, and there are a hundred people, and actually, weirdly enough, it it ended up the numbers went up and it went up to about 300 by the end and that had nothing to do with me and it had all to do with the young people who had turned up and were messaging their mates and telling them to come and it it reminded me of the the proper steps which is what rob has just been saying and that community and actually i hadn't engaged with that community at all i hadn't talked to them in a way that they felt um, they felt that they could come to this venue, um, you know, that they would be welcomed. Um, I hadn't thought about um, the security and how that might look on the door to a whole load of young, black, white, you know, all of the different ethnic, um, diverse ethnic uh, people that I wanted to bring along. Um, and yeah, it was only it was only down to those young people just messaging their mates and saying you need to come to this where we had something that looked a little bit respectable, but um, everyone knew that really um, the failure had come from not communicating with the community that we um, wanted to work with. So um, that's that's what I wanted to say. Thank you for sharing your failure and your philosophy around failure too. <laughs> I can jump in and maybe, um, like in terms of failure, I think it happens all the time. And I, I think often it's around communication and miscommunication. Like I think I think almost every major failure of my life, whether it's personal, professional, can come down to communication. Not communicating too much, communicating too little. I think this is really easy to kind of um, 
to kind of see this. But I wanted to offer maybe a, not a failure, but um, a humbling producing experience then changed everything. No, and this is also, um, I had been brought onto a project as a production manager. So really just get shit done, girl. Nothing really last minute, three weeks to go. And it was a project uh, for Refugee Week in Melbourne. Uh, and it was a, there was a group of 12 um, recently arrived refugees and asylum seekers um, and a couple of senior members of the community from all over, from, um, from Afghanistan, from Syria, from uh, parts of Northern Africa. Like it was a, a wonderfully diverse group. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was really excited to meet them and we started developing this project where we took over the building of the old information center in the city of Melbourne to where people would get their tourist information as a kind of a mode to, um, it was called the, the Bureau of Worldly Advice. So it was really trying to get people in one-on-one -on -one conversations with refugees and asylum seekers who at this time and continue to be are highly persecuted by the Australian government through their extreme um, anti-migration uh, policies, <laughs> which uh, continue to cause a lot of harm to a lot of people. Um, and this was now 10 years ago, no, seven years ago. So it still continued. Um, anyway, it was a wonderfully successful project and uh, we managed to get 600 people one-on-one -on -one with conversations ranging from five minutes to three hours. Super successful. Um, and I think it was like on the final day, I realized that I was the only non-migrant in the group. And I was like, oh, this is like something cool to realize, but like also just like, oh, like, oh no, what have I done? Like, have I, I just hadn't really acknowledged it and like, have I, have I, I don't know, have I been the right kind of host in terms of talking about, uh, in terms of, you know, I'm not a First Nations, but uh, in terms of like local communities, like have I done the right kind of welcoming or right kind of connecting? And uh, me and Dagmar, who um, herself was a migrant uh, and refugee from Poland in the 80s, who was the lead artist on it, um, uh, after the project had finished, it was huge success for me. It became really good friends, all of us, and great. We're like, let's have a dinner and let everyone know that you're not a migrant. And I was like, should we let everyone know? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, yeah, let everyone know. And I was like, okay. And like, it was just weird, but we like, I was like, okay, I'm not, you know, I, I haven't come to Australia. I was born here, but um, uh, yeah, and I just want to let everyone know. They're like, oh, yeah, we just thought you had been, and that's also fine. Um, Anyway, that's the whole kind of tangent. But in the end with this project, the thing that became this really humbling um, experience was that um, at the end of the project, uh, Dagmar and I had decided that um, these were very special people and we couldn't assume how we could potentially continue our friendship and continue assisting in any way. So we just asked everyone what would be, what would be something we could do. Uh, this like what is something we can do and not in a way of like money or, or anything but like how can we distribute our knowledge and our privilege of the city and of the systems um, in which they are uh, coming into and and a lot of them still in community detention which is a whole other set of issues um, 
and it was amazing because actually in the end this project turned into um, a two-year project which was around discussions of how what is Australian what is it to be Australian which brought in uh, First Nations voices um, which brought in voices of migrants from multi-generational uh, perspectives so first generation third generation fourth generation and this project that initially was this quite simple um, project of being this production manager for this show which was uh, or this installation which was a conversation between uh, recently arrived refugees and asylum seekers and the people walking in the street turned into this quite long project La Discorso which brought in all these things around indigeneity and belonging to one's country around migration and settlements and this was all from them and this this for me as a producer it was like okay again asking what people need figuring out what you can offer because I can write grants, I know I can do that. I can I can gather cash. I can get some venue support. I can I can organize someone to to record a podcast. This for me is not difficult, but um, yeah. And so this this project for me changed everything. Um, and I uh, yeah, unfortunately, the, the, <laughs> like Rosa and Obaida, some of the two people I miss the most from Australia. Like that that this this project turned into also a community on its own. That was a total ramble, but I some uh outcomes on that yeah absolutely well I think it ties into you know who are you producing for like what is the agenda (laughs) and then also maybe you know that producing doesn't necessarily always have to be about a product but can be about a process you know um or that the um the duration of a project can can expand and contract and and I think it's good to think about like this idea of audience, like audience participation, like there's audience, there's participants, there's drivers, there's artists that, that actually uh, like in creating live moments, uh, it's, it's not just for the audience. It's also for the artists. It's also for the place. Um, yeah. And like to like this definition of a live moment I go to all the time, like we're working toward live moments, which is this collision of the artist the place and the audience or the community, like it can only happen with all three all at once. If that, if it's not happening, it's not live. Um, and that can be, this place can be Zoom <laughs> and the audience can be our friends and the participation list. And we can be, be those, those actors as well. But I think, yeah, without all of them, it, it just doesn't, doesn't work. But I'm taking up too much time. Rob, over to you. <laughs> no, 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 keep going. It's all good. I'm, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying listening. And it's hard when we do this because I, I start to feel like it's a podcast, and I'm like, oh, I should go off and do some dishes and <laughs> and just really get myself in the full immersive experience. Um, uh, a failure. I, when I saw that question, I was like, there's, and I'm, I appreciate Anthony. We're constantly. It just never stops. I can always do basically everything in my job a little bit better. Um, I even like today I failed because I really wanted to acknowledge that the people I work with on my team and like Nimkish Younging, who were, we kind of curate music together. Um, uh, Margot Kane, who also works with push festival oversees what we do. And we check, we check in with Margot on a pretty regular basis of like what our programs are doing. And Curtis, who oversees Curtis Clarisky oversees our cohort. So, um, and that's uh, one of my favorite things about producing is just the fact that I get to work with a bunch of people I really like and check in and be like, um, am I failing? Um, like Nimkish, I rely on so much because 
they have a different, uh, they're, they're about 10 years younger than myself and they have a better understanding of some community connections with uh, some of our younger performers. So I'll be like, hey, if we put these artists together, what do you think? Is this a good, uh, is this a good mix of people together? Is everyone get along? What's going on in the community right now? Um, and likewise, they'll come back to me and check in and be like, hey, um, you know, have you done this before? What was your experience in this venue or, you know, working with this tech or whatever? So um, that's one way uh, I've learned from failures is because, you know, more often than not, my failures, especially in the programming side, comes from me having a really great idea of being like, oh, you know, um, we're programming this this festival and there's two stages and the stages are going back and forth and we're going to grab another performer and we're going to get them on the main stage slot with 15 minutes and I know we have the 15 minutes because I built the schedule and we have extra room and then we put them on stage but then the techs are mad because they don't think they have the amount of time and basically I'm putting the artist in a bad spot because I think as overseeing everything that they're going to really excel in this opportunity where they might not really care (laughs) and um I've created a whole bunch of problems without checking in with everyone individually. And uh, I've learned with, I've learned that from that a few times because like uh, what I don't want to do, and I like what Anthony, appreciate Anthony saying, we got to push our artists to the edge and make them work hard. But there's times where we've set them up to fail and um, we have to acknowledge that when we put them in a really crappy position. So um, that's one, one sort of, uh, <laughs> failure I've had. And I think about that all the time and go back to, especially, uh, when we curate nights and we have a lot of performers and we're switching around is it's like, is everyone in a good spot? Is anyone going to be put in a spot where they're not going to do the best they can? And it, it's a hard, it's hard to be an artist. It's hard to share your story. It's hard to be vulnerable on stage. And when you're put in a position where, um, you know, where they feel like, people don't want them there that's a crappy feeling uh, you know and i've been there as a musician and and, and a performer and that sucks when you feel like you you already start you already start with like a huge obstacle to overcome and just getting on stage is an obstacle so you're making it harder for them to to show up the next time you book them so uh i definitely have to i work on to be better in that way of like trying to get away of my braid ideas to do a little bit more when sometimes a little less is better for everybody. Uh, another just quick story in this world of video content, digital content, um, you know, we at full circle, we haven't had to really, we just kind of like, accept if people are, when we've had virtual performances, sometimes people submit stuff and we've never censored, censored anything. I've worked at other festivals and there's a different line. Um, and there's a different line and sometimes there's different types of performers. And, um, I worked at a really great festival last year and we accepted all videos recorded by musicians. And we basically said from the start, we're not censoring anyone. They've been selected here for a reason. They're going to do their thing. And when we prepped them, we said that, well, guess what? Everyone has a different line. And there was stuff that we definitely had to bleep out because there's different lines for different performers. And then, you know, there's one thing of someone doing something that I'm totally comfortable with. And then there's performers, especially if they're freestyling and hip hop, where they might use language that I don't really agree with. And we had to make choices of bleeping stuff out. And it's not necessarily the performer's fault, even though I'm it's, but it's my fault because we didn't check in and actually ask them what their line was. 
like our line is different than their line and we want artists to you know kind of get there and push it but uh i think you just have to be clear with your expectations because um there's definitely uh there's a different culture when you're freestyle rapping and performing a song and dissing people and there's also a different uh when you're doing a performance that's maybe uh more um maybe sexual and you know you have to be very clear on what the boundaries are and if as uh, a curator or an artistic producer you need to be clear on what where at what point um this isn't probably going to fly for the show just because of the audience and and um and funders and sponsors and all that stuff so um hopefully that's a okay example of uh failures and myself not being clear enough i think when you're touching on um care care for the artists care for the communities care for the audience and that responsibility um that producers have presenters have um and this actually touches on something that Anthony had brought up um, in an email conversation earlier a question about the role of producers in supporting the mental health of creatives and of themselves, yourselves. And I'm wondering if maybe um, you can share your thoughts on how you, what kind of practice you have around creating care for yourself, for the audience, for the artists. I'm just kind of expand on that. Yeah, sure. Um... I I just think in, you know, over the last um, two, three years, um, uh, in a brilliant way, mental health and well-being is, is being spoken about um, in, in kind of just in more trusted and well-held spaces. Um, and, and that is, that's great. And it is now kind of seeping into... Um, a professional way of working so that you know I, I'm now seeing and writing myself clauses in contracts where where mental health and well-being is now an integral part of of a contract um you know we're we're um currently um building a, a, a project with a, a a trans artist and um and we are ensuring as part of the project um that the whole of the organization will go through um kind of uh training um uh with this brilliant company you're based in in the uk called gendered intelligence and you know and and that that's part of that that agreement um and that's the right thing to do and so i think as producers there's now an extra as if we needed another one but there is now an extra kind of branch to to this tree of producing and that is making sure that everything we do is put in mental health and well-being of of not only the artist you know very much we always put the artist at the center but it's now everyone who is um part of of that process be it um you know the production manager or the stage manager um our, our own team ourselves um and uh, and i guess in a way you know um Beck was was kind of talking on the other side of it when when she she went you could tell already the passion that she has for for politics and 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 what she was saying about Australia and and it's it's the same for mental health it's almost that we now need to um, make sure that we are putting that on everyone's agenda and making sure that we are not always commodifying or commercialising 
this this product and that there are humans at the other side of it so i guess i just wanted to to hear from 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 the other from the other panelists from beck and 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 rob on on the maybe the type of training or 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 what they're putting in to kind of bring that practice i can only say that you know as a, as an organization and definitely in england that there, there's definitely more training that everyone is doing um but if there's anything else um i thought that might be of use to not only myself but but everyone who, who's with us I'm, I'm happy to take this one next because um this has been a huge theme for the, me since i arrived in latvia about 18 months ago um uh because there is no resources um uh, even finding a, a psychologist to support my mental health has turned out to be impossible um, in English. Um, and I'm, I have to seek mental support internationally, <laughs> which is a whole <laughs> another kettle of fish. Um, but, yeah, I think it's relative to the place that you are. So, I mean, I think the UK and the systems of funding there are extraordinary. To have access costs to pay for a psychological Um, Arts Council England that you could put an additional 10% into your grant to have uh, a psychologist uh, support depending on your um, play or writing or performance that you're making. Extraordinary, you know, that there, there is wonderful prep there. In Latvia that's not exactly the case at the moment so um, trying to find different ways that through our organisation um, we can try and find ways to fill the gap it's really hard um i undertook um, a mental health mental health first aid course as kind of a first step to find some language um to find different ways of yeah really the the kind of um yeah mental health first aid course it's really they're all over the world they're online really easy way of uh talking about acute mental health and supporting maybe smaller like not extreme but uh, kind of interventions along the way early ways um there is actually um an extraordinary organization that everyone should look up right now write it down um support act uh, which is an organization in australia maybe rob knows about it but it was um designed because uh in australia if you are working particularly in the music industry um you are something like 30 times more likely to kill yourself than um uh in in any other industry. It's a very high um, rate of suicide. Um, and the Australian government was like, this is not acceptable. And then created an organization to support this. So it's designed for artists. It's not just music industry. It's also been widened and there's heaps of online resources that anyone can access. So there's, um, there is different kinds of movement practices and support sheets, resources. So please everyone, I, I, I think it's supportact.com.au, but, um, uh, is a blueprint for mental health in the arts industry. It's super great. Um, the one thing that has been a tradition at the festival, though, and I think I'm super proud of it because I think anyone that's ever worked for a festival knows that it's burnout central, whether you want to or not, uh, whether you put all the things in place. If you're uh, in leadership, you're first in, last out. It's just part of the game, unfortunately. But we take a day off halfway through the festival. Everyone, all of us, all the artists, all the technicians, everyone, we go to the beach for the day. And so, you know, our festival's like Thursday to Saturday. So it's a 10-day festival normally. 
we just take Monday off, everyone, and we go and there's this beautiful beach about 40 minutes from the centre of Riga and there is this sauna, um, which is very important to, to Latvian culture. And I know Elsa, I can see Elsa's, um, well, shout out to Elsa, I can see her in the participants. But it's a sauna on a boat and you have to kind of walk out into the ocean, freezing ocean in September, sit on this boat in a sauna. There is, we have a, a sauna master that comes and uh, with birch leaves and uh, oak leaves and song. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of pummels everyone. <laughs> gets the blood flowing we eat we drink we celebrate and we just stop working so this for me is something that I can recommend to any festival maker take a day off but make it part of the the deal and um uh, so with the festival that I now am the director of I'd heard about this day off right and then we got programmed into the festival this is before I got this job and I was like amazing get this day off like as an artist I was thrilled but actually that the year that uh, we performed they had cancelled it for another reason so it was uh, the moment I took the position that was the first thing that came back found the budget we increased it it's like um, that forever will be um, there and hopefully we can make it stronger and and better so there is an invitation anyone that wants to come to, to Riga to Latvia in September let me know we'll get you on the sauna boat and uh yeah, I think this idea of stopping and shifting around is 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 really important. Thank Rob. you. No, it's interesting hearing those like concrete <laughs> examples. Um, that's really helpful, and uh, I think push needs to step up its game. <laughs> we need a day off. We need a sauna day. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rob. Oh, this is this is a tough one because this is something that really I, it's a great. I just a, just a great point, and I can go in so many different directions. So, um, especially in the last couple of years, it's been very difficult, and a lot of us are addressing, you know, the burnout. You know, the show never stops. Um, definitely been guilty of that. Like uh, the last Talking Stick Festival that happened in 2020, we made it right before everything shut down. So we knew what coronavirus was. We had no clue what would be on the other side. Um, and I worked and it wasn't just the talking stick festival, but I was, went on a tour before, and then I was in new Orleans for a music conference. And then I did two weeks of a show and then went right into the talking stick festival. And also I had at that time a, a one-year-old and my wife was like eight months pregnant. So I was just running myself into the ground and I ended up in the hospital probably with COVID, but they didn't really, they weren't really testing if at that point it was all kind of unknown, but I had been traveling around the world and it was very likely I had everything would indicate that. that. So uh, I'll never do that again. I'll never work into the point of exhaustion because I was probably sick and spreading whatever I had around, you know, um, going to a festival and, you know, and part of the failure of what I was designing was things that I felt like I had to be at. I had to be at everything. I had to oversee uh, this workshop. I had to be there. I really didn't. It would have been fine. Or if we canceled it, we could have rescheduled it. And um, that's something I've learned is you can cancel things. You can reschedule things. You could check in with people. And that's something that I did you know, with uh, Omicron and, and the COVID cases going up, we checked back in with the artists again after we booked them and said, do you guys feel comfortable performing? Uh, this is what we have in place. And a lot of them asked a lot of great questions. And there's a lot more transparency of, about how the show is being run. And um, 
comfort levels of what where performers are at and crews at. So um, that is something new. Um, even at Full Circle um, last year, I took on the position of managing producer, which was you know a forty hour a week job, and um, it really didn't end up being great for my life. So uh, about six months in, my wife was going back to work, and we decided that it'd be better if I just you know, and I talked to Margot about it and our team and uh, to scale back. And um, it's been great. I scaled back my work schedule. I feel a lot better. My family life's a lot better. And um, I think it's being honest. It's like not always about climbing up this ladder to the very top. It's about, you know, doing what you love and appreciating it. And, um, you know, it's not always like this end product. So um, one those are a couple things. I, I mean, they're not like things built into contracts or things are just things that have been happening with, you know, dialogue and conversations. And that's something that's always been great at Full Circle and Talking Stick Festival. And even the last festival we had before our, our last production meeting, before we did anything, uh, we got together in a circle and there was probably 20 of us there. And we just had a, like a sharing circle with some elders and a smudge. And that was really, really great to start a festival. And it like kind of like, because you're right, it, it, it is really hard. It's hard to put on a bunch of shows and um, that that experience and that feeling of being together and sort of like uh, just sharing where we're all at and about what the work we're doing and that, you know, we're, we're trying to achieve a greater goal of which, you know, love and sharing and community and connection and storytelling and getting together was really something I appreciate because that's probably the last time we got to do that for a you know, really long period of time. So um, that's something I appreciate about Margot's leadership is sometimes, you know, all those other production stuff that takes a back seat to us connecting uh, with our elders, with each other. And then, you know, we'll figure out all the details later. We'll figure out when that stage is going to get loaded in or where those, where the back line's coming from. That can figure that out down the line in a text, right? So um, th those are a few things. I, hopefully that helps with the mental health aspect. Yeah. Thank you all for sharing your wisdom. Um, it's something that at push we're thinking about in terms of for so many years has been, um, a culture for the artists and for the visiting folks. Um, and also, um, attention to making sure there's diversity um, in the artists that are presented on stage and all these things that are like outward facing, but then, um, you know, and no fault of any one person, but it hasn't always been the same within the internal culture. Um, so how to create that internal culture that reflects the values that we are um, um, putting out or also creating for, for artists sometimes, but not for the team. Um, Madeline had a question in the chat. I am going to get to that. Thank you for asking, but I, <laughs> I just want to jump back to Anthony. Maybe if you can quickly, because you had mentioned like you're putting things into the clauses of your contracts um, to, that are um, there to, to care for you. Um, and I'm wondering, and I know that you've also worked on the development of like an anti-racism rider for artists going into venues to make sure that their experience is, that, that it's an anti-racist culture. Um, and so I'm just wondering maybe if you can share like one kind of example when you're speaking of these things more specifically so I can steal it <laughs> just so I can learn from it. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, the um, just quickly on the anti-racism rider, that was, you know, that, that, that came from again from from the well-being of of a whole a whole cast. We you know we have 
a show that some people know about called Barbershop Chronicles that that toured around the world and and it's 12 black men um all in one space um talking about you know just a brilliant show if if any of you don't know it it's by Inua Ellums just read it it's just a stunning piece of work um and um you know when after each kind of tour we we spoke to these guys and um and it was a huge success um but it, it really took it out of them um you know they 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 traveled all all around the world they went to america australia new zealand um and and that there was not one tour where um they weren't made to feel um other and um and that could be from um you know venues not ensuring that um that the 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 digs um so like where where we were placing the artists where they were living um weren't run by people who 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 were kind of inclusive of all people um they they um there was one brilliant place i won't mention the country or the the city um but there was one brilliant place where they um went and did an engagement talk at a university and um there was a there was a collection of um uh of of uh how can i say this uh tools and clothes that were that were owned by slaves um and they were kind of just put up as part of a a university um um kind of exhibition um even though they they knew that that 12 black men were were coming in to talk to their students so it was it was things like that so that's where the that that anti-racism rider came from so probably the most basic one is probably the the digs one um i'd say um you know it's it's a list that always gets um used by artists um because they want to save on money and they want to they want to you know be in a place where there are people you know when you're touring you're just in a hotel room so it's quite nice to be with it with a family or, or whatever um but it's keeping that up to date and making sure those people are just genuinely nice and will protect people um but on in in the clauses in 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 the contracts themselves um uh, we are making sure that um, there is a chain of command and it is it very much listed. If you have a problem, this is who you go to. If that person is the problem, this is who you go to. Um, we also um, make sure that we put, um, uh, it, it's called holiday pay. So every, every artist um, or, or stage manager um, can, is essentially, they are seen as an employee um, and they they have to have holiday pay. Um, some people don't put that in their contracts, but we ensure that that we we do that. So if they if they can't take holiday, even if it's for a three three day run, um, they can have like one seventh. I'm not going to go into the maths of it, but um, if they can't take that holiday, we ensure that we add extra money to pay for for that time. So again, it's that and then there are these things um which are happening more and more and we're asking for them which are access riders and um beck i'm sure is really up on on all of that but essentially um if there is any kind of 
any any access issues that an artist might have and that might be in uh, an invisible you know maybe a neuro neurodivergent um issue they can present us with an access rider and we take that um, all of our team have to read it, even if they might not come into contact with that artist. Um, all, all of the different venues, um, we are that person. We are that kind of person who says, "This is how you need to treat this person." And if you don't, these, this, this is the these are the repercussions. Um, and that's been brilliant, actually. So we we try and ensure that we put that in all contracts to make sure that that artists. Um, send us their access riders or we can help them to write those access riders as well it's not just always relying on them i might just jump in because anthony access riders are really a uk-based thing they're super cool <laughs> but from what i know i haven't seen them so much in western and central europe i can't speak for canada and i can't speak for australia currently because of covid <laughs> but um i really like i i know the format from the uk of course um and i think it's a um, yeah. it can be difficult if you call rider because then it's kind of like a demand it's like it's not even it's just like a, this is me <laughs> this is how I need to be treated uh, to be um uh, yeah to have everything uh, right I, I don't um, ask for access riders because I hate artists having to do extra work so if someone has it uh, of course but what I do I make sure I have intimate conversations with every single artist um quite often many, many times before they come to the festival because we also, um, within the festival context, we're not very good at having one-night stands, but all of our artists are really long-term lovers that come back and forth from our festival over years and decades and and there is lots of interconnectedness of, of ideas and of, of um, stories and of um, time together. But, yeah, I think it's that thing of, um, yeah, spending time with artists. Like, what do you need? I, I mean, that's the question I always lead with. What What do you need? Like, money, like time, energy, effort, like what do you need? Um, and then we can talk about what you want, but what do you actually need? Like what's what's this? And then we go to what what do you want? And, and I think, um, yeah, I think access writers are, are a great idea. And if people have them, they're super wonderful to use. But again, I'm always so fearful of asking artists to do extra administration um, uh, when it can be replaced by a human contact. This is my this is my strategy. I'm really that guy, which can also get me in trouble <laughs> because if I don't write everything down, then sometimes uh, this can be, uh, again, if we talk about uh, like Madeline's question, uh, which was around, I'm trying to move this in, uh, Gabriel, uh, but like with Madeline's question around like how do you remedy failures, I forget things sometimes. I forget to write it down and then with all intentions, I I. I I, I think I am succeeding, no? Like, even if it's just like, um, I forgot that one of the artists didn't eat onion. Super small thing, but actually makes a really big difference if we are providing lunches for everyone and a big old onion, oniony <laughs> thing comes. It's vegan, it's gluten free, but I forgot about the onions. Then this actually means that the artist doesn't have lunch. So, uh, into, which which is usually fixed with an apology and and an order from Uber Eats. But, um, yeah, I think uh, it's about, yeah, intimate conversations. And um, uh, I can suggest to everyone to write really good notes and record things. I never do. But um, if I was to teach producing (laughs) to others, um, either have an assistant who does all of it for you, which would never happen, I think, um, in our our arts industry. Um, But 
or yeah, have really good notes. This is one of the dream things I would love to learn how to do is taking really detailed notes. This is um, of meetings. This was this is the thing I would strive for if we talk about learning and, and gaining habits. Thanks. I'll just actually, yeah, I want to make sure that this question from Madeline is addressed. Um, I will ask Rob if you have um, something to share in terms of how do you remedy producing failures with the artists, with the community, with your team? And then I think we'll probably get one more question in before we wrap up. So just a quick note to people, if you have a burning question, make sure to put it in the chat now. Thank you. Yeah. And sort of getting back to the situations, especially around, you know, um, that I was kind of referring to a failure on my end of, you know, asking artists to admit stuff. You can do whatever you want. And then we ended up having to bleep a couple of words. We just checked, checked in with after and I had a really good conversation. There was, and it wasn't just one conversation. It was two levels. And we, you know, we explained where we were coming from. They explained where they're coming from. And, you know, we're not always happy with the end results, but at least we had that, you know, uh, that check-in. It wasn't, you know, well, that happened and then you forget about it and move on. Um, I think it's all about relationship building and, you know, sometimes as producers, when we, um, to say fuck up, we just have to accept that we fucked up. Someone's going to tell you that. And we have to sit with that and we got to work on being better. We're not always going to come to terms where everyone is, is okay because that happened. You did something to somebody or you put them in a position that wasn't great. So, uh, I think that's just the best way to go about it and uh, having lots of debriefs after and chatting with people and um, um, apologizing when you need to or explaining your your point of view. And that's that's my suggestion for that. If, if you come across something where you feel like, oh, that didn't go quite the way I wanted is just checking in with the artist, checking in with people and, and just having conversations and relationships in any way that's that's good for you. This is the nice thing with with Zoom um, or a phone call or, you know, even better sometimes in person, but that's not always possible. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, being able to own up is really important because as you're talking, as you're, you've all said, you know, failures and mistakes happen all the time. Um, but then also if you have that philosophy that failures and mistakes happen all the time, then you can also forgive yourself, you know, as long as the right steps are being made to, to address it and to, to make amends where, where, where possible. Um, I would like to know what kind of projects excite you as producers and what kind of projects you look for. Yeah. That's a really good question because it changes every day or every hour. Uh, for me, for me, I, I think, I think art really speaks to, it speaks to who you are as a person. I think that's why we're so passionate about it. So for me personally, and, and and this is the thing, it's so subjective, but it it has to be something that I'm that I can see that that artist is really passionate about. I, I might not be passionate about it, and that's totally fine. Um, but but my job is to understand that there is a community um that is wanting to hear whatever that person is trying to put across. Um the ones that I love are obviously the ones that that where you know that my skin is in the game. I'm I'm really um, I'm really into whatever that piece is trying to tell me, be it you know a, a, a visual piece or a piece of music or a piece of theatre. Um, and really, at the heart of that, you know, my thing is is 
creating a safe platform for people who who don't always have that chance and haven't had that chance historically be it for a, a, a number of different reasons um and so so that's that's the stuff that really gets me up and gets me going um it's to make sure that more and more unheard voices um are, are being heard and are being put in a place where they feel really safe and it's not just a kind of there's this thing at the moment which i'm really um i get a bit angry about but i'll i'll, I'll hand over to beck and rob before i get on my soapbox but it's about culture porn and it's about this thing where um you have um these these artists who can only present their work in a way where it's like look at my pain um look at what i've had to go through and then the audience sits there and goes oh my god i just witnessed something that has made me feel so bad and i i don't really care it's it's not for those people um so that's what gets me going really um it's about making sure that uh, there's a safe platform for people who, who need to say something that they're really passionate about i love projects um more structures that redistribute or redirect um, platform and privilege and amplification um priming using an example we are just starting up a project called um the shakedown which uh is a, a collaboration between us in latvia and rosendahl theater in norway um and we managed to fundraise a, a, a quite significant sum of money to support 10 teenagers, five from Latvia, five from Norway. I'm going to give them 30% of the festival's program this year. They will program their own festival in Norway next year, supported by a team of some of the most exciting curators, in, in my, my opinion, people from Exodia Lodka, from Czech Republic, and Matikel from Poland, and this whole team of us who are really interested in, like, giving space, time, And again, this, this idea of supporting stories and unheard voices, like giving that care to the next generation as a form, because these teenagers will never know that it's not possible. <laughs> we'll have 10 culture makers, change makers that will never know that it's not possible. Um, and yeah, these kind of projects make me super excited. The fact of like changing systems, it's like, like we can change a small system, <laughs> like that's, for me, gets my heart pumping real hard. Um, and it's not necessarily about even the quality of the work. Uh, though, of course, it's great when it happens, but but I think sometimes when you make those system shifts, that's that's remarkable in itself. And, um, yeah, yeah, getting close and intimate with, uh, yeah, young people and hearing stories and giving space and giving cash and giving, like, energy and resource This makes me happy. And it's not just with young people, but different communities or, or different individuals that have, that need their voice amplified because everyone has a voice. I think that every voice is there. Just some of them are um, receiving less amplification historically, politically, lots of, lots of reasons. But yeah, happy to wrap. I'll be really quick because I think I'm just going to echo a lot of uh, the same feelings. So anything for me that that's has a connection to some community, whatever community it is, if it's if it's their audience, if it's their peers, if it's um, something that's reflecting a, a common story of what 
what people are going through. And um, I don't always have to initially connect with it, but there's nothing cooler when you program something, say it's for youth and all of a sudden, you know, a hundred youth show out and they all know the songs and they, they're, they're dancing and, and they're all, they, they're dressed different and they look really cool. And you're just kind of like, just off to the side, feeling a little old and that's perfect. I've done my job. Um, uh, I think, um, and then just like, if people are pitching me a new music project, I think anything that's exploring like collaboration in, in any way. So new work being created together, uh, because I, I program music, it's really easy to pop stuff up. So when there's like a chance to just like, Oh, we're going to, just going to put this together. We're going to work for a week and then we're going to show it that, to me is super fun and exciting when there's that level of like tightrope of like, this might not work out, but we're going to try it. I think that's exciting to me. Well, thank you so much. I am very inspired from hearing you speak about your, your philosophies and your practices and what you've learned along the way. Um, yeah, just for those who may have joined us late, um, this was Rob Thompson from Full Circle First Nations Performance in the Talking Stick Festival, Beck Berger from New Theatre Institute of Latvia and International Festival of Contemporary Performance, Homo Novus, and Anthony Gray from Fuel Theatre. Thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm.